0: Hello, and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Eleanor Langford, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories, with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. As we're recording on Thursday, voters are heading to polling stations in thousands of councils across the UK to elect their local representatives. These elections have been tipped as a political test for both the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and Labour leader Keir Starmer. So could the Conservatives be hit by months of speculation over Downing Street parties and porn-watching MPs? Can Labour finally capitalise on the cost-of-living crisis to win more seats? To unpack what these elections mean, I'm joined by our political editor, Adam Payne, and leading elections analyst, Lord Robert Hayward, who is also a Conservative peer. So there's been varying reports about how many seats the Tories could actually lose. I've seen everything from like 100 up to 800 in the last few weeks. Robert, What do you think is the result that we can expect? Is it actually going to be a bad night for the Tories? <laughs>
1: The range this year is absolutely incredible, and it's all about management expectations. The Labour Party are trying to talk down how many they're going to gain. That's normal. The Tories are trying to exaggerate how many they might lose, and you've just covered a good range. I think Tories will lose somewhere around three to 400 seats. I've put the figure at 325, and I hope I'm right.
2: And if it is 325 or in that region, would you characterise that as a bad night for the Conservatives?
1: I think part of the bad night for the Conservatives has already started, because... There's no question that large numbers of Tory MPs and Tory councillors when out canvassing have had a rough ride over Boris's leadership. What we're going to see when they come back next week is a combination of whatever the results are and wherever they've lost with this sense of criticism of Boris Johnson as party leader. So I think it's going to be difficult for him. But as was said in the introduction, there's big question marks over Labour leadership as well.
2: And that's why we've seen in the last few days examples of leaflets being handed out in areas by Conservative candidates in which they've really explicitly sought to distance themselves from national government, from Westminster. It's not unusual for candidates to sort of emphasise the local element of these, of local elections. But do you think... We've seen an abnormally large amount of this going on.
1: There's no question. It is an abnormal amount of distancing. We're used to social distancing as a community now, but this is (laughs) political distancing away from Boris and Westminster to whatever the local community is. Even, for example, in Wandsworth, the Wandsworth Conservatives have fought the whole election on low council tax. The Labour Party in Wandsworth have fought it on Partygate. And that is clearly the differentiation of tactics across the nation writ large.
0: How unusual is it mid-term for there to be a turn away from the, the political party? I mean, Adam, you touched on some of the examples we've had in the past, but is this just a bit of mid-term blues or is this something more?
1: This is actually quite abnormal in that I'm sat here talking about the Conservatives possibly losing three, 400 seats. And mid-term normally, the figure would be heading towards a 1,000. This is a very, very abnormal state of politics. The Labour Party will say, well, we're up against what was a good year in 2018 when these seats were last fought. But they were last fought with Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party. So actually, it was quite easy for the government to hold on to a lot of seats, which they would normally have lost in a period of government to a strong opposition. But it's quite striking this time. Labour should do well. They should gain a lot of seats, but it isn't actually off that good around in 2018. It should have been much better then. So I actually
2: interviewed Keir Starmer a few weeks ago, and he was on our podcast as well. And when I asked him about these elections, he said he'd be measuring it by national vote share, i.e. how the national percentage breakdown compares to the last general election. But to sort of unpick what would be a good night for Labour, sorry, as opposed of to the Tories, what would that look like numerically, do you think? Maybe 200, 300?
1: I think over 200. But whereas the Tories, it's a combination, possibly of location, but more of criticism of Boris and Westminster. Mm. In the Labour Party's case, it is that they have to pick up certain locations. Yes. Wandsworth and Barnet in London, and come a clear second in Scotland, they have to overtake the Tories in Scotland. But they also need to show that between London and Scotland, in their historical areas of the Midlands and Yorkshire and Lancashire, they are actually coming back. And that's where Keir Starmer's right to talk about vote share, but only up to a point. I think they're trying to deflect away from the fact that they may not take control of that many extra councils this time around.
2: So with that in mind, Robert, for people listening to this who perhaps planning to stay up this weekend and follow the results as they're coming through. Where should people be looking out for in the north, in the Midlands, the so-called Red Wall, in order to get a sense of how Labour is doing in those areas?
1: Working down from the north of England, Sunderland, If the Labour Party lose Sunderland, it will be a bad night. It won't be to the Tories. It'll be a combination of different parties. Then you should look at places like Kirklees in West Yorkshire and Sheffield in South Yorkshire. Again, good measures as to whether the Labour Party are clearly on their way back, whether they've been able to fight not only the Conservatives again, but also the Liberal Democrats and Greens in those two authorities. Coming down into the Midlands, it's a case of places like Walsall and Dudley have the Labour Party held on to a lot more seats than they did last year because they lost a tonne of seats in those sorts of places. It's the same wards being fought a year later and the Labour Party need to be able to show that they've made major progress against 2021.
2: Similarly, if we've talked about one wall, let's talk about another, the blue wall. And by that, we're talking about generally traditionally conservative areas in the south of England, which you'd crudely describe as being socially liberal, Cameron Easter, didn't really like Brexit, have a certain view of what a leader should be. And Boris Johnson doesn't really fit that mould. In terms of places to look out for in that part of the country to see how the Tory vote's holding up there. Where would you suggest?
1: You're absolutely right. It's the Remain-oriented, wait row shopping, Radio 4 listening, higher educated, particularly women who have turned away from the Tory party. And you should look at places like North Hertfordshire, Wokingham, Elmbridge in Surrey, All of those sorts of places. And because those results come in first, they're small wards with only one contest. I think the Lib Dems are going to be the first to be able to claim. A successful night, because I think in some of those authorities the Tories will take a hammering. It's the home counties. But the one to watch in the longer run for the Lib Dems is Somerset, because you've got by elections pending down there in Tiverton and Honiton, possibly in Somerton and Froome. And can the Lib Dems get reestablished in what was one of their great bastions, the southwest? But Somerset doesn't come in till later.
2: So Ed Davies the first person we're gonna be hearing from in the early hours of uh
1: I have no doubt uh, (laughs) if, if Ed Davey is not the first leader to claim great success, he will have failed because, as I say, it's the small wards in the home counties authorities which should come first and should provide him with the victories.
0: I kind of want to zoom in a little bit more on on Labour because obviously a lot of eyes will be on them as the party hoping to be in government by the next election. I actually wanted to go to you first, Adam. You mentioned your interview with Keir Starmer and what he said there. What impression did you give you about how Labour is actually approaching this, this local campaign?
2: Obviously, when I spoke to Keir Starmer, it was uh, several weeks ago, and a lot has happened since then, not least Gate as, it, as it's been said But there seems to be sort of two prongs to the Labour attack. You had, firstly, the cost of living element. I think their slogan is Labour's on your side, and the Tories are not on your side. They're really hammering that message. And secondly, when I sat down with Keir Starmer, a large chunk of the conversation was devoted to how he really wanted to contrast himself with, with the prime minister in terms of personality. I think going into the next election, Team Labour is gonna try and contrast Keir Starmer as they see it as being a sort of decent, trustworthy, straight up guy, with Boris Johnson, who's this sort of dishonest, sneaky, law-breaking individual. They are the two elements of Labour's campaign. I think sort of looking beyond these local elections though, obviously the Labour Party has a policy of a windfall tax on energy companies in order to help people with their energy bills. But I think the Labour Party quite quickly is gonna come under some pressure to sort of spell out what else does it stand for. I've heard from you know people even in Labour circles that we get that Keir Starmer is decent and he's intelligent and he used to be a lawyer and we get that, but what would a United Kingdom Under a Labour government, under a Prime Minister Keir Starmer, actually look like? What policies do you have? And I think perhaps not that what featuring in in the immediate analysis, immediate aftermath of these elections, but I think going forward, I'd be interested for your thoughts, Robert. I think Keir Starmer and Labour will come under pressure to sort of spell it out, particularly as we move closer towards the next general election.
1: Picking up one thing you touched on very briefly, gate, as far as I'm concerned, that won't impact on the results tomorrow. Okay. It takes generally seven to ten days for people to really register something and for it to influence how they feel about a political party. I think you touched on the other key thing for Keir Starmer in the longer run, is that People don't actually know what he is. He may have established a certain presence, but it's not a real presence. Some third of the population still express a don't-know view about him, and that's not good for somebody who's a party leader. If things go well for him in the next 48 hours, which I'm expecting them to go reasonably well, but not stupendously so he will have to set about between now and the next election, really establishing what the Labour Party's for. It's not just a case of, well, the Tories are like this. He's going to have to have a series of points, one of which may well be a windfall tax, but we'll be another year and a half on by then, probably. they are going to have to be much greater clarity about what the Labour Party stands for, or else we just get more of the population turned off on politics because do the population really want to identify with whichever party? It's not just criticising the government, it is actually selling yourselves as a major opposition.
2: Looking ahead, because people are so keen for headlines and bullet points out of these results, as you know, Robert, moving away from England, looking at Scotland, a potential positive headline for Labour there is finishing second in terms of vote share for the first time, would it be since 2016, 2017? Obviously, in London as well, you—I said—we're moving away from England. <laughs> but um, we have councils in London which historically have been very conservative, which could go Labour. So there could be some sort of bullet points which make positive reading for Labour.
1: Oh, there's no question. Scotland, you will hear uttered by the Labour Party even before the results come out. I think it's a given as an expectation. Scotland has been historically part of Labour's absolute core base. And to get back into second place will be both pleasing, but actually should be unsurprising. But I think it's a given. They're not counting till Friday. So and because of the complications of their system, it may be many hours before we really know what the position is in Scotland. I would be really astonished if the Labour Party do not take Wandsworth and Barnet. if they don't take it. These are two boroughs. In Wandsworth's case, the Labour Party outvoted the Tories in 2018 anyway. It's just that they got the right votes in the wrong wards. In Barnet, much to everybody's astonishment, the Labour Party went backwards from a Tory majority of one to a Tory majority of 13 in 2018. Now, people can say it's Jeremy Corbyn, it was anti-Semitism and the like, but it was broader than that. But the Labour Party, as an absolute must, has to have those two. Croydon... Problems with Labour administration, but I think Labour hegemony over most of Croydon Borough means that actually they they will hold on to the different roles there. Westminster is the next up target, and... Labour could really celebrate if they took the totemic boroughs of Wandsworth and Westminster together, two of what are generally regarded as some of the best-run councils in the country, which is how their council tax has been kept down. But Labour, if they're having a good night if they take both of those together. Don't think they'll reach Hillingdon. I think the Tories will hold on to Hillingdon, which, of course, is the Prime Minister's own constituency, which is packed with marginal wards. So it's well worth looking at it
2: what do you expect the Conservative Party line to be? You know, we, we get to the broadcast rounds and the ministers are on Sky, BBC, et cetera, and they're trying to present the case for why it wasn't so bad. What will they point to and say, hold on a minute, what about this? What about, what about that?
1: They'll point to the calculations which some people have made in terms of projections of 800 or 1,000 seats because I don't think it'll come anywhere near that because 800 seats would represent over 50% of what they're defending. So they'll point to those. They'll say, look at what happened in midterm under a Labour government in 2009. They'll say 2009 was 12 years after the Labour Party was elected. They'll go back into the history of what is normally the case you will then get the message, well, yes, we've had problems with party gate, but we're beyond those, but they're not because of potential fines and the grey report, etc. So there will be a standard set of lines. Anybody who's had the fortune or misfortune to spend their time listening to broadcasts, where, as you say, party leaders are uh, interviewed, they come out with a standard set of lines and you can almost hand them over from one party to the other. The Labour Party line that was used in 2008-9 will be handed to the Tories in 2022 and vice versa. So they're all the standard lines and each of the parties will produce locations which most of us have never heard of to say, yes, we did really well in these places, just look at these places, how well we did, and there'll be places we've not discussed today.
0: And what point in the weekend can we start to sort of draw firm conclusions about what those lines are going to be and and who's done well and who's maybe had a bit more of a shaky night? Is it going to be Saturday evening, Sunday morning?
1: I think the ability to know whether people are padding out their justification actually will come as early as probably mid-afternoon on Friday. Absolute certainty late afternoon, evening on Friday, because by then so many results will have come through that we will know whether the arguments which one party leader, one party or another party is putting forward is actually shot two pieces in terms of the holes and the credibility, or whether what they're arguing has a degree of credibility, and they're just going a bit OTT. I may sound somewhat cynical, but it's a very exhausting 48 hours (laughs) with a lot, a a lot of spin. We're all used to it. We have it every single year at local election time.
0: And I'm wondering now, a couple of weeks ago, there was reports that MPs had got, they've got these predated letters that when there's a catastrophe on election night, they're going to submit those to the 1922 committee, to Sir Graham Brady, and try and get Boris Johnson out. But do you think it's going to be bad enough for those letters to be sent in? Do you think that was all just bravado and actually they're going to be, oh no, we did okay in the end?
1: My opening comments in relation to the Tory party was that you don't necessarily have to look at numbers. Mm. I think there will be a number of letters put in on the back of what the MPs have experienced in their own constituencies. Now, what I noticed before the elections break was that people were moving towards a willingness to criticise Boris, whether they started off as strong Boris supporters and they'd moved a bit, or whether they were strong Boris critics and they'd moved a bit, but they were all moving roughly in the same direction. So there will be speculation, but of course they'll be really triggered, not just by the elections, but the question of fines and the Grey Report and Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton. So we've got an interesting few weeks without anything else, and I think it's those latter events that will really up the pressure in one form or another.
2: That's really interesting you mentioned that, Robert, because in Parliament a couple of weeks ago, it was the week of um, whether Boris Johnson was going to be investigated for potentially misleading Parliament. There was a a level of anger among Conservative MPs, which I think caught a lot of people by surprise, not least Downing Street, who were forced into that U-turn. Do you think that's because these MPs were going back to their patches, chatting to their local councillors, local candidates, perhaps chatting to constituents themselves, hearing that fury and thinking, hold on, wait a minute, this is bad. And that's why they came back to Westminster with a level of anger and restlessness, which perhaps we didn't
1: see coming. You're absolutely right. Going into the Easter recess, the MPs were relatively pacific. They'd got Ukraine. There were other issues around. They came back in those few days afterwards By then, a fine had been issued, of course, which changed quite a lot. But the other factor will have been people out there canvassing, campaigning, supporting their colleagues as local councillors. And it was striking, the difference in mood between before the recess and after the recess. What I think will happen now is that the local election results, combined with further experiences of campaigning... Probably then combined with either more fines or the grey report following on to the privileges committee to which you were alluding. Mm. That's what's going to make it a bumpy ride for Downing Street because they clearly had not expected the level of frustration that they were met with when MPs returned.
0: Yeah, it sounds like Conservative campaigners have been having it raised a lot on the doorstep. Our colleague, Noah Hoffman, she um, spoke to a lot of Tory staffers inside of the activists and, and they said they've been absolutely lambasted on, on the doorstep. With a lot of these questions, not just cost of living, but of uh, Boris Johnson's leadership and also some of the more recent revelations about uh, misconduct in, in Parliament that you, you alluded to. So it is a very difficult combination of things that the Conservatives are facing up to at the moment.
1: What is interesting, actually, is that cost of living although it should be a massive factor, has been down the agenda from what I'm hearing that you've had things like Partygate, et cetera, as indicative of a frame of mind, a disillusionment with the Tory party, but which is beginning to appear to be a disillusionment with politicians in general. But I think cost of living is more a long-term issue, as it really does begin to bite for people.
2: It's a bit of a speculative question, Robert, but do you think once these elections are out of the way, and assuming the conservatives do have a disappointing night, do you think the PM might be tempted to have a little reshuffle and sort of create a sense of reset...
1: I think there is every prospect that there will be a reshuffle. I despair of that because good government stems from stable government, whichever mm. party it is. You imagine being a civil servant, trying to develop policy, turning it into, into a legislation, when each few weeks you're having another minister to deal with and we've had a reshuffle already this year if they arise from resignations that's one thing but just to have another reshuffle is really very bad government and actually reflects badly on the leadership of any political party, because you're saying, well, actually, we got the last reshuffle wrong. And the last reshuffle was only a few months ago. Mm. And by the way, the previous reshuffle was only a few months before that. So I think the speculation is that it's been delayed a few weeks, I would say delay it a lot further than that, because actually, that contributes to good government we'll put it down as a maybe then on <laughs>
0: i think the final thing that i wanted to touch on which covers a lot of things is just the turnout local elections obviously have very low turnout compared to general elections last year was a little bit of an anomaly because there was so many elections turnout went up but this year it's looking from your analysis and looking like that turnout might be down. Can you explain a bit how you've come to that conclusion?
1: I've been looking at the returns from postal votes in terms of numbers, I have no detail about how people are voting. What's I've always found fascinating is that for local elections Roughly 60% of the people who receive a postal vote actually return it. You can't imagine it sitting there on the mantelpiece or wherever by the sofa, and it's not actually returned. For general elections, it's only 80% are actually returned. But what... I'm receiving from around the country is news that instead of the normal 60% are returned, we are now talking about just above 50% of those postal votes are being returned. Seems to vary from one part of the country or another, but I've had no news of high levels of postal vote returns. To me, that says not purely a disadvantage to one party or another, might be disadvantageous to the Tory party, but not convinced of that. I think it just refers to a general disillusionment with politics in general, of which Beer Gates, the most recent aspect, is a further reflection of this sense do we really want any of them to be running the country? And I think that's why I see the opportunity for the Lib Dems and for the Greens and independents in these council elections.
0: On that. Right. Is there anywhere else in the the country where we could see a few, you know, wildcards where maybe some smaller parties, independent candidates could really, really make an impact?
1: I think there are a number of indications that residence groups in places like Kingston might well do above expectations. They might gain a seat. I think the Lib Dems are going to do poorly in Sutton because they've been running it for so long. Many local authorities which have been run by one party have a reaction against that and people cast around for an alternative vote. And that's where the Greens might do well in some of the London boroughs, places like Haringey, Islington, Hackney, Southwark. But also the Greens have already been doing well in Sheffield and they want to build on that and find one or two other places. They've been campaigning heavily in places like Gateshead. There will be one or two oddball results which make it so interesting for all of us.
0: So that's all we've got time for this week, but you can read more on all the biggest political stories at politicshome.com and by subscribing to our newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of our website. Thank you so much to our fantastic guest, Laura Robert Hayward, and to our political editor, Adam Payne. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow our team on Twitter at AdamPayne26 and at LauraSilver underscore, and I'm on at Eleanor Mia Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend. Enjoy all those results coming in and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Eleanor Langford, and this has been The Rundown.